0: Welcome. This is Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi,
1: and I'm Katie Halper, and we are so wearing glad the same clothes be, we wore last yeah, week. Yeah, we wanted some continuity, and we're just really into the crab. Rehab we've actually movement. been
0: here the yeah, entire the time. Entire
1: time working on the script. Yeah, we as have, you can tell, it's a we big, haven't left the script, spot. Yeah. yeah,
0: we've been living off Boy, water and Cheetos. The we, whole time. We've
1: had to raid some Native American graves. Yeah, which is what. They did, by the way. Pilgrims did that for, for food. food. Yeah. <laughs> they, were very, they weren't very—they were doing too well, so they had to get some corn husks. Pilgrims are fantastic. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. didn't have to do that, by the way. Party folk. There aren't any around, but yeah.
0: All right. So we have a great show for you this week, which is remarkably similar in theme to, to some of the pro, the content we did last week, but, yeah. uh, but it's going to be just as interesting.
1: Yeah, just as interesting. Um, Max Blumenthal, part two. Mm-hmm. Hit it.
0: your career and with the with the gray zone it, it seems like you kind of are exploring a lot of the themes that maybe noam chomsky wasn't you know in manufacturing consent. you're always sort of interested in the role of american power around the world you know, trying to talk about it in ways that are not typically addressed in you know to the the commercial press um has there been a change in in uh the willingness of the media to explore those themes,
2: or how do you how do you see your role uh, today? I think there's just uh, we've we've kind of fed a hunger among the public in the West, and even in Latin America, um, we we just launched a Spanish section. You know, it's not like we have like a team of staff or whatever, but, you know, we're proficient in Spanish. Ben Norton is fluent in Spanish and we work with like, you know, translators on a shoestring. Um, And so when we go down to Nicaragua or Honduras or Venezuela, people know us and they follow our work. And that's really encouraging because there's no pressure there to, you know, people... uh, they don't have they don't have the same kind of um, pressure in their media or they have these actual left-wing workers movements that have their own media that are able to tell the truth as we see it where it's so much more difficult here Um, so I mean we're we're, I feel a lot of momentum with what we're doing Um, and what we're doing is I think you know it's a public service to educate people and to highlight uh, what isn't being said So much of propaganda in this information war is about what isn't being said. So what I'm attacked the most for, for example, is writing about the Syrian white helmets. Um, Their founder just died under mysterious circumstances last week. And what wasn't being said was that they were also funded by USAID and the British Foreign Office, that they were not set up in Syria they were set up in Turkey by a former British military intelligence officer, James Lemersurier, and they were working through a public relations firm called the Syria Campaign, uh, spun out of a very high-flying PR firm here in New York and London called Purpose, funded by Ayman Asfari, this Syrian-British billionaire who was very close to the Tory party, was essentially a cutout of the British military intelligence apparatus. And what this PR firm did and aimed to do through the White Helmets who were running around in... Ar- areas controlled by Salafi jihadi groups like Jabhat al-Nusra, Arar al-Sham, some of the most bl- bloodstained extremists on earth, uh, with HD cameras, was to stimulate support, particularly among liberals, this is why they chose the Syria campaign, for a U.S. military intervention in Syria that would have provoked a region-wide disaster and led to the spread of ISIS into Lebanon. Um, and I wrote about this, and I documented how the White Helmets were essentially the MASH unit of al-Qaeda's local affiliate in Syria. They were direct participants in public executions. We presented video of this at the Gray Zone. And there are many other journalists who have been writing about it, but we were kind of attacked because we were seen as sort of validators. Um, and it meanwhile...
0: Like sorry, when you, when you talk yeah. about things like this, uh, in the few instances where I've ever talked about Syria, instantaneously, there's yeah, like, Assad, on, on, on Twitter, you're an Assadist, do you want to murder Syrian children? Like, they come out of nowhere. I mean, it, Well, you can, you know. what
2: they never do, and they will, and, you know, you're going to get it for hosting me. Even if I talked about, you know, ponies for the whole yeah. show, they would say, you hosted an Assadist. Right. But this needs to be said. The public needs to be informed on how they're being manipulated, and that's what we wanted to do. And no one disputes any of the facts that I just put forward. No one disputes that the White Helmets were participants in, this, in the Turkish, brutal Turkish invasion of northern Syria where the city of Afrin was ethnically cleansed, the center of the town was looted, and then the White Helmets came through with bulldozers to clean up the looting because they were part of the so-called Turkish Free Syrian Army, which are just the repurposed moderate rebels that the CIA and Pentagon used to arm. And now everyone in Washington is freaking out about them because they're slaughtering a U.S. proxy in the Kurds, the Kurdish YPG, but right. before they were slaughtering yeah, no, Syrians. The, the, the and, memory is very short on that issue, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and selective. Um, I don't know, Samantha Power is very good at compartmentalizing. Um, so anyway, the point is that, you know, we've been doing these kind of investigative pieces and people find them very informative, but then there's other people who have something to hide. So James Lemersurier, who recently died under mysterious circumstances in Istanbul, I had learned that he was a participant in the campaign to prevent the main bookstore, political bookstore in D.C., Politics and Prose, from hosting me for my launch about the management of savagery. It's because, thank you. It's because. Uh, everything I just dis- described and detailed appears on the pages of the book. So it's basically like a tobacco lobbyist trying to take down, you know, a um, consumer health advocate, health advocate who's revealing that they added nicotine secretly to their cigarettes. It's like, right. you know, the Koch brothers trying to take down envirom- an environmentalist. It's it, it's it's at that level, and so they use this language of really extreme, frightening language of genocide and you know, to, to obfuscate the situation on the ground, but also to um, avoid en- engaging right, with the facts. They never
1: say, I mean, I said this when we mentioned you and your arrest, that people, your, you know, your enemies and critics, they'll never say you what you get wrong or what you got wrong. It's just that you are an Assadist, that you're a conspiracy, a theorist. A conspiracy theorist, a genocide denier, a... Um, uh, you know this that or the other smear as opposed to saying look he lied when he said ABC because they kind of can't and you know we get kind of as someone as, as people who are somewhat adjacent like we don't we're not known as the I don't know uh, well I'll speak for myself I don't do the uh, original reporting that either of you do but just for having this podcast you know people the same people who attack you will say will tag me Matt and Rolling Stone and be like, shut it down. Like, they don't even pretend. There's yeah, they're, no, they're completely no censorious. Yeah, and there's no, there's no thing that they could ever bring up, and it's all by association. So they'll mention you, they'll mention Jimmy Dore, they'll mention, you know, Tulsi. Tulsi it's yeah. all these people who are toxic. And it's like, no one ever defines what makes you toxic or not toxic. You, you wrote a piece about this, how you're allowed to, like, you basically said that, you know, all Dems have said or done weird things, but certain things that are weird or bad or wrong are permissible and certain things aren't so Mm -hmm. if you're if you've done something that's if your view is like anti-war or anti-one particular war or anti-conflict or you know you're you're like a weirdo but if you were wrong about the iraq war you're not marginalized like joe biden's not a freak or a weirdo because of his stances on 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 those things
2: well first of all this is way more complex than the iraq war the u.s. doesn't fight through conventional warfare anymore to carry out regime change operations. It doesn't have to. This is about hybrid warfare, and the public in the U.S. doesn't understand hybrid warfare. It's a combination of it's non-conventional warfare, for example, arming the Contras. In Central America, arming the so-called moderate rebels in Syria, which is a recipe for mass death. I mean, you're going to get at least 100,000 dead in a small society when you do that. Then there is... What's known as sanctions, which is an incorrect term because when you say sanctions, you think we're punishing a country for doing something wrong and that the sanctions were approved at the UN Security Council. What we're actually talking about is unilateral coercive measures uh, to bring about regime change, economic terrorism, attacking a civilian population to uh, affect the government. That's a definition of terrorism, and it's what's being applied against Syria in a very vicious form. So it's just
1: state-sanctioned terrorism.
2: State like, sanctions, uh-huh. and you know, it affects all Syrians regardless of how they feel about yeah. the government. When I was there, everybody criticized the government to me, but none of them wanted the state to collapse because right. they didn't want to be Libya. And then the third part, which I mentioned before, is the information war, um, using the media, public, public information, as they call it. Disinformation, propaganda. So, you know, the Voice of America or Radio Free Asia on China, that's an element of hybrid warfare. And it also appears in our media. All of these various groups are set up to provide statistics to the, you know, blue check mark foreign correspondents who are also participants in the information war. So, for for example, you constantly hear that 500,000 people died in Syria, but the UN stopped counting the death toll in 2014. Um, there is no reliable death toll. The 500,000 number, and many died, the 500,000 number comes from a group called the Syrian Network for Human Rights, which is constantly cited in mainstream media. And it's never, again, propaganda is also about what isn't being said. Right. So we don't know much about this group. I investigated it, wrote a piece at the Gray Zone about it. It is run by the Syrian opposition, by the Gulf-backed Syrian opposition, out of Qatar, a Gulf state that is, has no democracy at all, not much respect for human rights abroad, which um, funded the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. Um, and this human rights group has no methodology available. It's impossible to discern how it comes up with these statistics. And it claims that 97% of people who've been killed on the Syrian battlefield are, op- are on the opposition side, and are mostly civilians. But then you have another group called the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is also pro-opposition, run out of Coventry, England, by a single man who's funded by the UK Foreign Office. And this is the other group people go to for death tolls. And if you actually look at their death tolls, and they do provide some methodology there, they reveal that 100,000 people died on the government side. I mean, the government was pouring bodies into this fight to prevent the country from being overtaken by Wahhabi extremists who successfully turned swaths of the country into miniature Saudi Arabias uh, and worse. And you know, being in and around Damascus, you just see guys in army uniforms who are regular guys, and these are the guys who've been doing the dying as well, along with civilians, including religious minorities who've been slaughtered everywhere the opposition advanced. So it's a much more complicated picture it doesn't completely exonerate the the government. It's a war and they've done yep. horrible things. Right. But we get into the details at the gray zone and we reveal what isn't being said. And what that says about the New York Times, which cites the Syrian Network for Human Rights as a legitimate source, is that they are publishing disinformation under the banner of this respected Brand And, you know, democracy dies in darkness. I mean, it's dying. They're they're supplying the darkness. Suppose, yeah. uh, and the point is to stimulate liberal support for these destructive wars. Yeah.
0: There's the reaction. There's no other issue that stimulates uh, a, a more intense. Propagandistic reaction than Syria. It feels like that's that. There's an, oh, maybe Russia, but the the, the yeah. Russian. Well, thing. it's tied in with Russia. Right. Well, actually, that's what
2: I want to ask yeah. you. We so can I, talk
1: about the impeachment. Just like we can by the way, every time
2: way. I mention Syria, it's like Syria is just gets really excited.
1: That's really funny, Syria. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, guess,
2: yeah. So I have I have a theory I want to run by. I've never yeah, asked yeah. you
0: about this, but so to what extent do you think RussiaGate stems from? the Syria situation. So I, like, if you go way back, you find that piece that um, Seymour Hersh wrote in the London Review of Books, right, which has Michael Flynn in it as a source. And Michael Flynn back then was the head of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. What he was saying was there are no moderates
2: that we can back. In Syria yeah, the Defense Intelligence Agency produced a document that was suppressed by the Obama administration exactly. under the watch of Flynn. Flynn didn't write it. It was his right. analyst. Right. And it said, if we keep, if we pour arms in, they will establish a Salafist principality in northeastern Syria. He predicted the rise of ISIS. Right,
0: exactly. And so this, that article, which, you know, for, for that and for a couple other things, Hirsch is now basically called constantly a conspiracy, yeah, conspiracy. theorist. But I always, I, I felt... I mean, I think there's some evidence for the idea that this was the beginning of um, a problem that that dogged Flynn for the rest of his tenure in government and maybe even was part of the reason that there there was, you know, there were people investigating him or sending informants after him in Cambridge or whatever it was. I mean, is there any connection between what happened with Flynn and, and the investigation of him after he left?
2: Uh, depending on and that whole conflict and, and controversy. That's a great question, and it gets close to the heart of the issue. Flynn's just a moron. I mean, the guy is absolutely just like a disgrace, and he kind of screwed himself, but, you know, the NSA was wiretapping him, and that's highly unusual, and it speaks to an intelligence coup against the entire Trump administration, So, and, that, and that's part of what Russiagate is about. So I see Russiagate as a confluence of factors. The first factor it is, you know, the Clintonite dead-enders, the Hillaryite dead-enders. They just want to get Trump, and they, you know, through figures like Alexandra Chalupa from the DNC, who comes from this Ukrainian nationalist family and was working with the Ukrainian embassy to dig up dirt on Paul Manafort, they started to be able to establish at least a plausible connection between Trump and Russia that could be fed to the public, and specifically to really upset liberals. I mean, you remember the freak out after Hillary lost, um, And just, you know, what is the Virginia Heffernan article where she just wrote a love letter to Hillary? It's like you knew something was bad was going to happen there.
1: Kate McKinnon playing uh, Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God.
2: Um, And, you know, it also gives the Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and whoever else Schumer the ability to attack Trump without doing anything remotely progressive. So if you start attacking Trump over putting children in cages on the border, that means Democrat gets in. You can't do that. But that's what we know Obama was doing for years. And then the other...
0: It was was slightly different.
2: Slightly. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. yeah. They're going to deport a lot of people. Right. Whoever, you know...
1: And they do nominally condemn that stuff, right? They don't policy-wise. Like, they'll fund his his budget, and they won't... And they'll fund the wall, but they, you know, it's not... It's it's something that they condemn. through their rhetoric, as opposed to something, for instance, they like Bolivia, which they don't, right? Or Venezuela, they do, they actually like come out on the wrong sides of those things because they are with Trump. Not to get things. too
2: sidetracked, but I think it was in April when the Democrats and you know the Democratic leadership sort of authorized MSNBC to launch a freakout over caged children on the border, and Trump's approval rating immediately plummeted. Whereas it, throughout the all the whole Russia Gate period, it just kind of st- stayed steady because right. the public does, it doesn't resonate doesn't with the ca- public, right. but it's frightening for Democrats to you know freak out about real issues. Uh, because it puts them in a box. That's my opinion, but the more important point is that th- is there's a second factor to Russia Gate, and you've done a great job of explaining this and it's the, in- the so-called intelligence community which is neither communal nor intelligent uh, led by figures like John Brennan who was helping to run the massive arm and equip operation in Syria. This is what the CIA likes to do. They love to run these big operations and get their people on the ground and they've got field operatives and researchers who are the moderate rebels, you know. Right. And it was a multi billion-dollar operation. It was called Timber Sycamore. And when Trump started running for president, he realized that his base didn't want to give weapons to jihadists. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this might be a popular uh, selling point. And Hillary Clinton did, and she wanted a no-fly zone. And so that really upset John Brennan. I mean, they, he was taking his baby away. But the whole military intelligence apparatus and the Beltway think tank architecture was upset about this. It's like Trump is not only you know, embarrassing and humiliating the Bushes for Iraq and 9-11, he's going after our future hybrid wars. And Russia comes in because Russia is playing a very important role on the world stage, where, as John Kerry acknowledged in leaked audio in a meeting with Syrian opposition members, Russia intervened in Syria because the U.S. was sending in so many weapons that even ISIS was advancing. And John Kerry said, we were watching ISIS advance and hoping that their advance would force Assad to the table to negotiate his own transition out of power. So Kerry essentially admits in private that ISIS was a kind of U.S. proxy itself. It was, it was advancing the U.S. goal of destabilization and regime change. Russia comes in. Russia's, what, how far is Russia from Syria? It's like as far as DC is from West Virginia. It's not that far, and they've struggled with this problem of jihadist extremism on their frontiers. Syria is their only ally in the Arab League. And they came in and immediately put a stop to ISIS's advance. You know, ISIS had gone into Palmyra, the home of some of the world's most treasured antiquities, and lynched the chief anthropologist in the main theater. Russia and the Syrian army retook and liberated Palmyra. And then they liberated Aleppo the following year from uh, Eastern Aleppo from Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate, and its allies. And the freak out. In Washington was so extreme, and this was at the height of the election campaign. And Russia is not just playing that role in Syria; it has protected Venezuela from regime change. I saw the vice president of Venezuela, Delcy Rodriguez, speak in Managua uh, before 500,000 people in uh, the central plaza at the 40th anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution, and she said, "Russia is Venezuela's heroic protector, and we thank them." And 500,000 people exploded in applause because Russia, whether you like it or not, is bringing to to bear a kind of new multipolar world order. That's Russia's agenda on the world stage. And that is the greatest fear of an empire that, as you know, from the 90s and living in Russia in the 90s, I mean, that's when the U.S. had Hege- hegemony over Russia's entire economy and politics.
0: Well, that was the great dream is that we basically, Yelts- Yeltsin was going to be the model for for, for right. Russia going forward. He was going to be a drunken puppet who we could tell what to do and we could keep them in line with, you know, the, 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 lending through the IMF or whatever it was because the country was always going to be an economic basket case and we would always have that, the, the, that lever to control
2: them. Right, right, exactly. And that Failed as you documented really well, it failed, and a new world order is with, with, with Russia and China are essentially enabling a new world order. Russia Gate, so Russia Gate is going to go well beyond Trump, and it's going to be used against Bernie Sanders if he opposes it this agenda. I mean, it already, already tried, is.
1: They say that he was helped by the Russians. Tulsi
2: yeah. Gabbard, who's been one of the most forceful opponents of the proxy war in Syria, and you know actually introduced a bill to disarm the so-called moderate rebels has been called a Russian asset by Hillary Clinton and I said from the beginning on the only mainstream show that would have me to say this before a national audience Tucker Carlson that Russiagate will blow back on the anti-war left to the extent that there is one and that's what we see Taking place, um, so I think the next targets. You know, I, and I, I said that too, and a c- couple of years ago, that yeah. this, this this was becoming a, 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 a
0: means to go after just just sort of dissent generally, yeah. And and it was becoming extremely useful uh, in that regard, and you were, they were going to start seeing an expansion of targets, and that's that's kind of exactly what's happening. Yeah. Right? So the
2: empire closing in on itself, and if you simply say that Venezuela's government should be relieved from sanctions and be allowed to, you know, continue to serve out their term. If you say Evo Morales should have been allowed to serve out his term into January in Bolivia, you can be accused of echoing Kremlin propaganda. Whether it's true or not, you're echoing Kremlin propaganda now. um, And that's sort of the, and, and then beyond that, The information or what I call the disinformation warriors, what they aim to do is then get you sort of slowly removed from social media platforms and, you know, soft censored for for doing that. And
0: also to replace any kind of a discussion about this with this other narrative that there's this gigantic sort of James Bond villain style world domination plan, you know, with this cyber warfare that the Russians are engaged in. Whereas actually, when you really look at it, it's just straight up sort of real politic, uh, you know, Russia and China, to, you know, tr- trying to establish a multipolar world, as you say. I mean, it's... it's to catch uh, up
1: with the U.S., right?
0: I mean, it, it's not really terribly different than what we're doing, but it's on a much smaller scale. I mean, Russia, you know, compared to us, we have, what, 800 uh, bases in 70 different countries around the world. Russia has... I don't know. They're, they're in maybe one foreign.
2: one or two. There's Vietnam and yeah. Syria. Apart from the former Soviet Union. What's their uh, their aircraft carrier? The Kuznetsov <laughs> like can't even propel itself. Right. Um, so yeah, not much of a a threat. But the real threat is the multipolar world. That it's just the idea. Right. Yeah. If there were were there a multipolar world where states could take their own dictate their own independent path, and where international law, specifically the UN Charter. Um, the the principle consecrated by the UN Charter of non-interference were observed. What's happening in Bolivia, where indigenous people are being mowed down in yeah, the streets let's talk, let's talk for supporting it, yeah. their democratically elected government, wouldn't be happening. Right. It wouldn't be happening. So I think you know it, could, it, it It's it's about lives. We're talking about lives, yeah. um, and you know this this, this the whole narrative of Russia Gate. It's it's basically trying to intimidate people like us from having this conversation about what kind of world we should live in politically.
1: That was great.
2: It really was.
1: It really was. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that.
0: When I was in uh, doing a year overseas in, in college, I had a, a, a classmate who was Swiss and we were celebrating Thanksgiving and he said, Thanksgiving, that's the one where you killed all the Indians, right?
1: Right. So that's what the, yeah. We were like, wait, is that Columbus Day or right, yeah. Thanksgiving? Also, I just thought, since we talk a lot about animals, um, I learned this at the History Channel. There was a Thanksgiving raccoon that became a presidential pet. In November 1926, President Calvin Coolidge pardoned a live animal intended for his Thanksgiving dinner and adopted it as a pet. This was no turkey, however, but a raccoon. In late November 1926, a live animal sent by one Vinnie Joyce of Nita Yuma, Mississippi, arrived at the White House to be slaughtered and served up for that year's Thanksgiving dinner. President Calvin Coolidge, however, became smitten by the beast and instead granted it a pardon. The lucky creature was no turkey, though, but a raccoon. While raccoon might seem an odd menu choice to grace the White House dinner table these days, the Washington evening star, thought the strange part of the story was that the president didn't want to chow down on the woodland critter, woodland critter, a theme, declaring the raccoon meat less fatty than possum. The newspaper then invoked the culinary cliche that the ring-tailed animal tasted like, wait for it, chicken, albeit one crossed with a suckling pig. But what I really like about this story is it looks like a very cute raccoon. And what I like the most about it, though, is that Calvin Coolidge named it Rebecca. Rebecca is not like a cute name for a raccoon. It's so dignified. It's not like I guess rocky this, raccoon. Predate, this
0: predated the Daphne scary Daphne du Maurier thing. Yeah, right. So great the, book. Yeah That wasn't like some kind of weird reference to him wanting to murder. Yeah. his Yeah, I or didn't something. know you knew Rebecca course yeah the movie i mean yeah great, oh yeah
1: movie yeah yeah and book rebecca the raccoon was up to no good she sounds very <laughs> feisty and spunky they kept releasing her and then she would oh calvin coolidge apparently they he, he brought her in to live with them with the family and then she kept it ate a she child? was like in and out of institutions because really? they would put her in the zoo and then take her back and put her in the zoo and one day they were she when rebecca was staying with calvin coolidge um She was, you know, kicked out of the house like Dino or whatever from the Flintstones. That's how I imagine it. But because he had a wound on his uh, paw, they think that maybe she bit him.
0: I I don't feel guilty about Thanksgiving. I I eat on Thanksgiving uh, and watch football and I don't think about the cultural significance of it. Should I feel guilty about that?
1: No, you just have to press the woke button. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, no, really, you got to press it. That's right. the least you could do. No, um, I mean it's just so embedded into it. I mean, I don't know what. It's almost more offensive to try to like to do anything about it. What are you supposed to do?
0: Nothing. I think this is a this is the time where you where you you celebrate the fact that America is the dominant country in the world. In fact, you you, you want to you, you almost want to take over more. Right, indigenous peoples around the world, or
1: Denmark. I or feel Denmark. like that what we should do on Thanksgiving, honestly, to be woke and progressive, is we should like just try to somehow push expanding into Denmark. Well, starting over with Denmark. Greenland. I
0: mean, Greenland. Greenland you know. Sorry, with yeah. Greenland. Yeah, Greenland. Yeah. yeah,
1: I just like the food. Some of it, I like pecan pie. Um, luckily, I don't think that's a very problematic.
0: I don't, I'm gonna just go ahead and not think about any of that on yeah. Thanksgiving. Do you have any we political
1: just, fights at Thanksgiving ever?
0: Not, not, not in my household. Do you?
1: No. All right. I mean, maybe my my mom and I are very upset. My dad watches MSNBC. Okay.
0: Well, no MSNBC on Thanksgiving. I hope everybody keeps their television off except to watch watch uh, sports and commercials.
1: And and useful idiots on their um, um, devices. And not Pod Save America. And not Pod Save America. Yeah.
0: Anyway, so follow this podcast anywhere you yeah, can. Yeah, f- anywhere um, you can
1: follow it. Um, follow it to the ends of the earth. Follow it. All roads fo- lead to Rome and um, Putin. So follow it to. to sit outside, to its sit
0: outside its window at night. Sit outside its
1: window at night.
0: Sit in an idling car outside of uh, while, while it's playing at recess.
1: Exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Definitely don't mention us if you do it.
0: <laughs> you do that. That's right. Don't tell, them that, don't tell don't anybody. Don't listen to that, that song uh, Crash
1: by Dave Matthews. Very weird stalkery song. Is it? Oh, yeah. Big. Time, yeah. Right. Great, very pretty though. So, so no, it...
0: no Dave Matthews. Uh, do eat, watch commercials,
1: and... and like, and like share a native share some like uh, Howard's in.
0: Okay, don't no raccoon, no possum, but eat, eat everything else, and don't feel guilty about it. And we'll see you after Thanksgiving. I feel guilty
1: about it, yeah.
2: I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.